Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, something special. With us, William Dudley. He is a former president of the New York Federal Reserve. There are eight, nine, ten topics that we could speak to William Dudley about. But there is only one topic for those of economics, and you've seen it percolate. We've done it on this show as well. And that is a new governor at the Federal Reserve System. Her name is Judy Shelton. She has an education degree from Portland State University, which is 624 miles from Bill Dudley's PhD at Berkeley. Uh, This is a delicate conversation, Bill Dudley, but let me begin with a blunt question. How does this system uh, deal with a potential governor this uniquely qualified? I don't think it creates huge amounts of problems. Um, there have been governors in the past that have been outside the mainstream. Wayne Angel is, is someone who comes to mind. Uh, and the Fed, you know, there's more than, there's there's seven governors. There will be seven governors if the Waller and Shelton are confirmed. And I think, you know, they will, they will have a voice, but uh, they will not actually set the path for monetary policy or regulatory policy at the Fed. They'll be set by Jay Powell and Randy Quarles. The heart of her theory is the yearning to go back to another time of a more closed American system, a more static economy. To the many people that support Judy Shelton and that desire, that feeling of another time and place, how do you respond in this time of an open America, an open economy? Well, she has advocated returning to the gold standard, and returning to the gold standard would result in tremendous increase in the volatility of interest rates because basically when gold prices were going up, the Federal Reserve would have to raise rates. When gold prices were going down, the Federal Reserve would have to lower interest rates regardless of what was happening in the real economy, regardless of what was happening to inflation, regardless of what was happening to the unemployment rate. The gold standard is not a good anchor for U.S. monetary policy. Bill, let's talk about the real economy. How would you be reacting now to the data that's started to come through in America? We saw it in the high-frequency data. We got a flavor that things were starting to stall, to roll over. Now we see it in jobless claims as well. They're starting to pick up again. I said a couple of moments ago that it looks like the right wing of that V is starting to break. What would that mean for you as a policymaker at the Fed again? Well, I think what's happening is the uh, recovery in economic activity is uh, flattening out as... Uh, as shutdowns are, are, are recurring and social distancing is increasing again. And I, I don't think we're going to see a fall back to where we were, uh, you know, in March, April and May. But the recovery is going to be uh, quite subdued. The unemployment rate is going to stay uh, high for quite some time. And as a consequence of that, monetary policy is going to be on hold. And the Fed, Federal Reserve is going to be looking around for what things can they do to provide additional monetary policy. What things do you think they can and should do in the months to come? Well, I think, unfortunately, they don't have a lot of great weapons. Uh, I think they're going to continue their large-scale asset purchases, buying treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities. Uh, they may uh, be, come forward with more uh, definitive forward guidance in terms of keeping interest rates until lo- low for long until the unemployment rate falls below a particular level or inflation climbs above a particular level. But the real, the real focus right now should be on fiscal policy. That's what the U.S. economy needs. We're basically right at the edge of a, a huge fiscal cliff with the expiration of the $600 a week unemployment compensation benefits at the end of this month. And if that's not you know, replaced by something significant soon, uh, the economy is actually going to uh, be weaker than people anticipate. 
Bill, Fed Chair, uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell also agreeing with you coming out and saying fiscal policy is necessary, but the Fed has control over monetary policy, and right now monetary policy is pushing investors into equities. We're looking at futures right now unchanged or a little bit higher on the day ahead of the open. Even after these uh, worsening labor statistics, how much should the equity market be a gauge of financial conditions for the Federal Reserve, something to shoot for with higher equity values being a good thing? I don't think the Fed wants the equity market to go to any particular level. They do want financial conditions to be accommodative. They want markets to work. They want markets to be open and well-functioning. And I think that's what they've achieved. I think there are some people on the Federal Reserve that are a little bit concerned about how high the equity market is. In the last FOMC minutes, you saw a couple of people talking about financial stability issues. I personally think the stock market is high mainly because bond yields are low. And bond yields are low because monetary policy is going to be very accommodative for a number of years. Well, but to the extent that the Fed is worried about the widening gap between wealthy and poor individuals, how concerning is it that their policies have pushed up asset prices, have created easier financial conditions, but clearly are not leading to a better labor market, given the fact that we're seeing a reversal in the claims numbers? Well, I think they are you know, frustrated by the fact that they don't have good tools to address the issue of income inequality. Uh, I think they wish they did have better tools, but monetary policy is not well suited for that. Fiscal policy is. So it's really for Congress and the administration to do things on fiscal policy that help address the fact that the burden of the, uh, of the pandemic is falling disproportionately on low and moderate income households. Bill Dudley with us, and we will continue with the former president of the New York Fed. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. As John Farrow notes, a flip in the market here. Futures come back, dollars stronger. And, John, we've got to look as we, as we continue with Bill Dudley. John, we've got to look at this substantial curve flattening. It's really broken down. Long end in by two basis points to about 127 on a 30-year. Bill, talk to me about the QE program and the scope for adjusting that to sit at the long end just a little bit more. The front end is already so well anchored. What can you do at the long end and what did you learn coming out of the last crisis? Well, the Fed historically has used their large-scale asset purchases to buy treasuries across the yield curve. They could decide to buy more longer maturity treasuries since, as you point out, the short end of the treasury market is well anchored by expectations that the Fed's not going to move for, uh, next, uh, for, for several years. The Fed has indicated that they're going to shift their large-scale asset purchase programs from focusing on market function, which is now good, to focusing on how do you actually stimulate the economy. And I think that it does imply that they're going to buy a greater proportion of longer dated treasuries. Bill, before we let you go, I need a message for fiscal policymakers down in Washington. There's a real discussion about perhaps allowing the enhanced unemployment benefits to expire, maybe to taper them aggressively. Maybe that's the best case that we can hope for out of the administration and Republicans. If that happens, what do you expect August and September data to look like, Bill? Well, again, I think it's going to depend more on the course of the pandemic and what social distancing that then requires. But if there is no extension of unemployment compensation benefits, then I think you will see consequences for consumer spending. But consumer spending has held up reasonably well, in part because household incomes have been well supported by fiscal policy. If that support ends, uh, the consequences of what we're seeing in the labor market are going to start to become more important in terms of household outlays. Bill, appreciate your time this morning. Appreciate your patience too. Great to catch up with you. William Dundee there, former New York Fed president. Right now joining us, and I'm really looking forward to a good conversation 
with a guy who has put together a firm of continued success. It is Evercore. It is Evercore ISI, of course, with the great Ed Hyman. And he is Ralph Schlossstein. He is co-chairman and co-CEO, looking like he just played a folk act at the Denison College Michael Eisner Performing Center. And we are thrilled uh, he could join us uh, this morning. Ralph, I want to talk first about your senior chairman, Roger Altman. I think it is underappreciated how lonely you got were when you set up Evercore. What did Altman and Schlossstein do at that time that was so different? Well, I wasn't there. Roger was there for the four, first 14 years without me. I joined 11 years ago. But he literally uh, came back uh, from his stint at the Treasury and thought that the world needed a more old-time investment bank one that focused purely on advice. Uh, and the very first presentation he made uh, 25 years ago, the first page had the words quality and integrity on that first page. And I've been here 11 years. The one thing I was allowed to do by Roger is I changed quality to excellence. And so now it's excellence and integrity. But it's, uh, it's a great business model. We have very senior people. They actually do the work rather than just show right, up at the right. and the board meeting. So, well, well that's a huge distinction, model. and certainly we've seen that with Ed Hyman and with the others of your your principals. Okay, let's cut to the chase. How do you readjust and recalibrate out of this pandemic, given the competition of the major banks? Well. Uh, what we have done over the last several years is to dramatically broaden uh, the things that we can advise our clients on. So we have the number one activist defense practice. Uh, we're the only independent firm with an equity underwriting uh, capability. And in the quarter we just finished, uh, we did more underwriting revenues uh, than we did all of last year, which was a record uh, for us. We have debt advisory, we have restructuring, uh, advice on hedging. So what we've done is we've built deep capabilities in everything that a company would want to do with right. a big firm as a counterpart. Okay, Ralph, one important question, and this has come up with Lisa Bramos and John Farrell day after day. You guys have been massively benefited by the stimulus of Jerome Powell and by the leadership of Congress. How do, you, how do you move forward with the American public where we see with New York Wall Street and indeed global Wall Street benefiting so much from the stimulus? Uh, that's, a, uh, I think, a really, really important issue. Uh, there's clearly been a, uh, a massive effect on the capital markets, both the equity market and the debt market, uh, and that has certainly benefited the trading activities and the shares of the large firms and of uh, all, all firms also. So we have this massive inequality. It was necessary to stabilize the economy, uh, but it's had a much greater effect on the wealth of the wealthy than it has on the well-being of those in need. Does that compromise your ambitions in any way, shape or form, Ralph? No, I think we have to continue to do uh, what we do, but it does, uh, in my private life, make me supportive of uh, people and of 
policies that are focused more on a, uh, a more equal distribution of wealth in this country. Give us more detail on that, Ralph. Is that a shift to the left for you, politically speaking, ahead of this election? No, no I, I actually uh, worked for Hubert Humphrey in the Senate and then worked for President Carter uh, in the White House. So I've always had a, I wouldn't call it a left, I'm a con- uh, conservative on fiscal policy, but I do believe uh, that we need to do more for those who are underserved in terms of uh, income, health care, housing in this country. So, Ralph, given the fact that you're a fiscal conservative, what would you say to companies right now raising record amounts of debt in order to survive this period of time becoming more indebted ahead of a period of slowing growth? Well, I think the uh, the most important thing for every company to look at in the period that we've just been through has been liquidity. Uh, do we have the cash uh, to survive? Because uh, in, in 08 and 09, we learned that financial institutions fail, not because of capital, but because of liquidity. And in this uh, recession, deep recession, uh, we have learned also that Uh, that uh, phenomenon is more widespread. So we spent a lot of time in the last four months encouraging companies to put more cash on their balance sheets. But here's, here's the conundrum, Ralph, because we're heading into a period of slowing growth. We have a more fragile economy and we have more indebted companies. Why not just file for bankruptcy? Why not renegotiate the debt loads now with creditors to reduce the obligations rather than putting their uh, entire capital models in a more precarious situation? Well, there is some of that going on uh, as well. Uh, I think the, the real issue uh, in terms of how to solve one's uh, balance sheet issues depends upon the outlook for the business. Uh, if if it truly is a V uh, type uh, downturn uh, and then recovery, uh, then it's just a matter of having the cash to survive to the other side of, of the chasm. Uh, other businesses obviously are going to be more seriously uh, and permanently impaired. And for them, you know, bankruptcy and recapitalization is the right model. Ralph, the heritage of Evercore Forward is on John Weinberg and you. And of course, Mr. Weinberg, that name is magical and always associated with Goldman Sachs. I'd be honored if you'd comment, Ralph, on the retail experiment at Goldman Sachs. Can institutions be all things to all people? Uh, Do you really want me to comment on that? He'd love you to. It, it, if I were uh, in their shoes, it's not uh, the path that I would choose. Uh, I think that, well, there are two parts of their retail experiment. One is uh, collecting deposits. That makes sense uh, because deposits are a much more stable funding source uh, than going to the institutional market. And I think that is a very sound thing to do. And they're, you know, they're paying up a little bit, but they're paying for much more stable liabilities or borrowings. Uh, the lending side of it, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, it's a very crowded business uh, and right. uh, coming late to the party in my view. 
Uh, as you know, Ralph, uh, Bloomberg Surveillance is all about the conversation with experts. Of course, we all know your acquisition of Ed Hyman Services a number of years ago. Tell us the value, the intellectual component value of the future Wall Street, the future global Wall Street. How much does it matter that experts will be needed? Uh, I, you know, it's it's interesting. I often say uh, that we're we're in every business that Goldman Sachs is in that meets the following criteria. You compete solely on the basis of your ideas, your intellectual capital, and your relationships. And the only source of revenue is fee income. So we are, we are the, the walking uh, example of an intellectual capital firm. We have two major businesses, the research business, which you just asked about, and the investment banking advisory business. And both of those are right. fundamentally driven by intellectual capital. Ralph, one final question. This is of critical importance. We have a viewer that emails in right now, John from Coventry, <laughs> and he suggests I ask you, do you think I could pull off the beard, Ralph? I mean, this was a point of debate pre-pandemic. Did you think, you know, d does my face say beard? Uh, Tom, you're asking about you? Yeah, do you think uh, I should grow a beard? What do you think? I don't know. You should probably ask those near and dear to you. Yeah, I did. Elf from New Jersey said no. <laughs> Ralph Schlossstein, go away. Congratulations. Well Thank you. <laughs> Congratulations, Ralph Schlossstein, with Evercore. All right. I thought so it looked take good, care, Tom. Tom. Great, great talking to you. Thank you, Ralph. Appreciate it. Right now, our conversation of the day on China, Meredith Sumter's Eurasia Group, head of research strategy and operations, and a move from Bill Ackman over to the authority of Meredith Sumter's important, out of LSE, and of course, with a profound knowledge of China. Meredith, what can you add to the conversation? You see the punditry, it's in the zeitgeist right now, but what can you add on this Thursday morning about this consulate tit-for-tat? Great to be here with you, Tom. I would say, look, look, this is a remarkably unusual escalation. A closure of a consulate outside of wartime is rare. And it's really just one of a myriad of U.S. actions, as you've noted, to pressure China and to try to put the bilateral relationship on a fundamentally different course. You know, we heard comments that this is strong, but the question is, is it effective? And what's key here? As you see this unswerving U.S. pressure in speeches of Trump administration officials um, over the past several weeks, National Security Advisor O'Brien hitting at the ideology of the CCP, the Communist Party, uh, Attorney General Barr calling China's ambition isn't to trade with the U.S., but to raid the U.S., and, of course, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo, who's called the relationship fundamentally detrimental to the United States. All this tells you is that you should expect the U.S. to continue this escalation with China up through November, even as most U.S. officials recognize that President Trump, according to poll night numbers, is currently on track to potentially lose in November. Their actions, bottom line, what we're watching here is their actions could fundamentally alter the course of the bilateral relationship on the eve of a potential administration change. Well, Meredith, let me ask you this. From your perspective, are these decisions surgical or are they reactive and unpredictable? You mean the, the decisions from the U.S. side, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm just wondering if there is an ultimate objective here and there are some surgical decisions which are going to come together in a bigger picture, there's a bigger strategy, or whether this is just ad hoc. I wouldn't call it necessarily ad hoc, but I wouldn't call it 
part of a grand strategy at all. Uh, talking to Trump administration officials, what's clear is the president has given a green light for his officials to get tough on China, thinking it might help him in the polls, although so far his campaign has been disappointed by that, with voters focused more so on pandemic than on China. But President Trump has been very clear that his phase one trade deal is off limits. So you see this tit-for-tat escalation being pushed by the U.S. side that gets right up to that breaking point, but is not meant to go over the line. And the risk is, is that they could go over the line without knowing that they're doing so. What happens then? What happens if the phase one trade deal gets rejected, is basically dead in the water, as Leland Miller of China Beige Book thinks it probably will be soon? You know, Lisa, what's really key here is that, well, obviously, you know, in the immediate term, there's going to be negative market reaction and fallout. This is not what President Trump wants on his side. Neither is it what President Xi wants on uh, on Beijing's side, which is why we still have a 65 percent probability that that deal lasts through the November election. But what's really key here is that phase one deal is increasingly a less relevant barometer of the U.S.-China relationship, even if that deal survives. <clears throat> The broader relationship has pretty much fallen apart, and that, that is, is going to be the case regardless of whether you have a second-term Trump administration or if you have a Joe Biden administration who will come into office and inherit uh, quite a challenging bilateral relationship. I mean, we can go all day on this and the different theories of, of, of game theory, Meredith Sumter, but it comes down to a game of chicken. Maybe you go back to Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis, mutual assured destruction. It comes down to who's going to blink first. How does that play out? What is the, the process of how you get through a game of chicken? Well, I would say I think that from, from Beijing's perspective, they're just trying to manage that game of chicken through November, looking at poll numbers and hoping that they're going to have a change in U.S. political leadership that they don't think will necessarily have a fundamentally different view of of that that um, uh, sort of confrontation with China. But it will be handled in a much different way, in a much more manageable uh, way for Beijing. Meredith, we've got to wrap up by talking about the response from Beijing. Last week, the United Kingdom is freezing out, announcing plans to freeze out Huawei. What we've learned in the last 24 hours is that China is responding by having a blackout for the English Premier League this coming weekend, the last game of the season. I'm just wondering why they keep going towards sports. They did this with the NBA in the last 12 months as well. They're doing it with English football now in the last 24 hours. How effective do you think this strategy actually is? Well, Jonathan, talk about a game of chicken. You think you have problems with the U.S.-China relationship, and China has problems across a whole host of its relationships externally. And the question is, does Beijing realize the strategic error that they are making? Uh, In other words, at a time when the U.S. position vis-a-vis China and, frankly, vis-a-vis the rest of the world has been at odds with with what the rest of the world wants, this could have been an opportunity for Beijing. But really, Beijing has fundamentally failed to capitalize on that on the part of using politics uh, and its own political incentives to try to coerce um, other countries John, in a way that's going to have negative spillovers. John, are you telling me that China's going to black out Crystal Palace and the Tots? That massive game that you're so excited about, Tom. That's, they won't be able to see that's it. That's American. Meredith, we've got to say thank you. <laughs> Meredith Sumterday, Eurasia Group Head of Research Strategy and Operations. Joining us right now, a gentleman who it is important to speak to on the 595 miles, rounded up, 600 miles 
from Manila west-northwest to a set of islands with Chinese jets on them in the South China Sea. And that would, of course, be James Stravitas. Admiral Stravitas has been a wonderful friend of the show and, of course, uh, has authored too many books to count, including the time his ship came out of San Diego and he moved out to sea for the first time. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How do we show the flag in the South China Sea? How does that actually happen? Um, Tom, we take our ships, as you would expect, our big uh, aircraft carriers, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, our big amphibious carriers that carry thousands of Marines, and above all, our destroyers, like the new movie, Tom Hanks, Greyhound, those fast, lean ships that can go into these waters, and we simply drive them through these waters. We operate the aircraft off them, and we do this to demonstrate to China that China's claim that the entire South China Sea is territorial Chinese waters is preposterous. It violates international law. These are called freedom of navigation patrols. It's the most effective way to physically demonstrate Mm -hmm. that these are high seas international waters. Admiral, let me ask a question, and I say this, or I attempt to say this with grace, in that we all have a collective memory of the Falkland Islands where boats were floating around and all of a sudden there was a missile. In this case, there are some form of images of Chinese uh, aviation within the vicinity. How do we know that our kids are safe on these ships? Uh, First of all, these ships have the most sophisticated air defense systems in the world. Having said that, you're absolutely correct, Tom. In the 1980s, during the Falklands invasion, number of British ships were sunk by Argentine aircraft. On the other hand, um, our Aegis combat system is very sophisticated radar. We have high-speed missiles that go with it. We can defend ourselves reasonably well. Uh, Part of this again, one final question. I know Paul Sweeney wants to jump in here as well. Admiral, it is tit-for-tat diplomacy You at Tufts, I'm sure, had to go through courses on game theory. To our audience and to me, it's just a game of chicken. How does a diplomatic game of chicken unravel? How does it end? Um, It unravels. Those are two different questions. It unravels if um, the protagonists in the game on the point of the exercise uh, miscalculate. If a Navy destroyer uh, fires on a Chinese jet uh, before it's in a firing position and we have an international incident. So that's how it unravels. The way we prevent it is create buffer zones, Tom. And the way to do that is negotiate with China for a set of protocols at sea that keep our forces some set distance physically apart. We did that with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. We're going to need to do that with China. Admiral, what is, what is the state of the United States Navy in the Pacific uh, as we speak here? Because we think about the tensions rising with China. Uh, good news, bad news. Um, good news, our carriers are forward. We have two nuclear-powered aircraft carriers in the South China Sea right now. We have very capable forces in Japan forward. About half of our fleet focuses on that vast Pacific water space. The bad news, Paul is, for example, we just recently had a fire and lost one of our big deck uh, amphibious carriers in San Diego, the Bonhomme Richard. Um, We see some instances where the Navy needs to do better with its level of professionalism, the destroyer collisions a couple years ago. 
So Navy has some work to do. It's not perfect, but it's still the best maritime force in the world. I'm confident in the Navy. So, Admiral, you, you kind of mentioned that uh, the fire for that uh, ship in San Diego. We've, we've all seen the images on the news, and you mentioned some of those collisions uh, from uh, some Navy ships over the last couple of years. Is, is there anything to, to extrapolate from those issues? Is there, a, is there something wrong with the Navy? Is there a breakdown anywhere, you think, the professionalism of the Navy, or are these just kind of one-off coincidences? No, I don't think they're one-off coincidences. And, and I just did a piece in Bloomberg Opinion, where I'm a columnist, as you know, on this exact subject. It's time for the Navy to kind of say, all stop, let's take a hard look at how we're operating the Navy, because there are too many uh, individual instances of concern. The new chief of naval operations, and he is new, we have a new secretary of the Navy, they both gripped this, and I think you're going to see some a hard self-examination by the service going forward. It, it seems to be such rough language. Secretary Pompeo with comments this morning, of course, in Denmark, I believe it was yesterday, I believe he has a speech at 4 p.m. this afternoon. It's moving so fast, folks, I can't keep up. This is almost ad hoc diplomacy. Is there a theory here, Admiral Stravitas? I think there is a theory with regard to China, which is, uh, as we get into this 21st century, our greatest challenge is not going to be Russia, which is what I focused on when I was Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. Instead, our greatest challenge going forward in this century, Tom, economically, culturally, politically, diplomatically, certainly militarily, is going to be China. So I think the administration would say mm -hmm. they are constructing a strategy uh, to compete with China to ensure that uh, we maintain our sets of alliances around the world. That's why you're seeing Secretary Pompeo out on patrol all around the world making these points. Admiral, we've got too short a visit. We have to leave it there, but we look forward to speaking to you again. Admiral Stravitas, James Stravitas, uh, with us today with uh, just wonderful books. I can't say enough, folks, about the Leader's Bookshelf. I just really can't say enough about its effort, particularly here within the pandemic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.